Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It was named after the daughter of a neighbor of the developer of the neighborhood who died as a young child. And so the staff and other guests who visited the house would hear someone saying, Daddy. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Hadley Mendelson, here with your other host, Alyssa Fiorentino. And you're listening to Dark House, the Haunted House podcast. In each episode, we tell the true story behind a famous house that's allegedly haunted or otherwise notorious. Today, it's Hadley's turn to tell us a story, and I gather this one's a doozy? (laughs) It is, indeed, and I'd argue that it's one of the more well-known haunted houses in the country. The icon in question is the Lemp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri's historic Benton Park neighborhood. Okay, yeah, we've talked about this one, but I've never dug into the research because there's a lot of stuff out there. So I'm really excited to hear the full story. Yes, it does have a very crazy reputation. And today it's a restaurant, hotel, or more like an inn, and also a ghost hunting destination, though that wasn't necessarily the intention of the owners. But before I get into all of that, I want to quickly shout out that my research today comes from all over the place, really. But the source that helped me learn and gather most of this information was a book called The History and Haunting of Lemp Mansion by Rebecca F. Pittman, which is linked in the show notes. Now, let me tell you what you can expect from today's episode. I'm going to be telling the story chronologically, beginning in the early 1800s, and then we'll move our way into contemporary times alongside the members of the Lemp family, who, as you're going to learn, were akin to the Hiltons in wealth and fame back in their day. I'm going to tell you all about their glory days and give you a rundown on the brewery business, even though, I mean, I don't know if you're a beer drinker, actually, but personally, this is really the most that I've ever talked about, thought about, learned about beer in my entire life. So we're going to do a little bit of that, and then we're going to creep into the 20th century, where you will hear how things started to fall into pieces. And this is because four out of eight of the children lived happy adult lives, while the other half Those who chose to stay at the family home actually died tragically and prematurely. Heavy. I know. It really is. It's a good story and there's a lot to learn from it, but it is definitely one of the ones where it's just like horrible, horrible thing after horrible thing keeps happening without even the ghosts coming into play. Well, I guess I'm ready. (laughs) But before we dive in, I want to give our listeners a heads up that the Lemps story does include several mentions of suicide and suicidal ideation as well as domestic violence, ableism, child abuse, and gun violence. If any of that might be particularly upsetting for you, please proceed with caution or consider listening to another episode instead. Okay, St. Louis's early European settlers were primarily French, and it was also occupied by the Spanish for some time, but under French control again until it joined the U.S. in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. About 30 years later is when the Lemp story really begins, when the German-born patriarch of the family, 
Johan Adam Lemp, we're going to call him Adam today because that's what he wanted to be referred to once he got to the States, came to the States in 1836, just one year after his only son, William Lemp Sr., was born. So Adam came alone to get settled before the rest of the family came. And William finally joined him 12 years later, when he was 12, in 1848. His mother, Justine, passed away from yellow fever. We talked about the horrors of that disease last season. And in 1854, his dad remarried. Adam supported his family by opening a little grocery business, and he started brewing his own beer while he was there, which was a lighter German-style lager beer that wasn't available in the U.S. at the time because the only beer that was really available was English-style beers, and those were heavier and much darker. He's actually credited as introducing America to German lagers, which is a pretty big deal considering now how popular they are. Yeah, totally. At the time in St. Louis, there was a thriving German immigrant community as it was the main destination for Germans, or one of them at least, in the 19th century. In fact, 450,000 Germans came to St. Louis in the mid-1800s. So Adam's business clearly had a lot of potential clientele. People were interested in his product. So it really took off. And he enjoyed it so much that he started bottling and selling it at the saloon next door to his grocery store. Eventually, it was successful enough where he got to just ditch the grocery business altogether and dedicated himself totally to beer under his company called the Western Brewery. And by 1850, he was shipping 4,000 bottles of his beer a year. Because this was before electric refrigeration existed, he actually had to rely on an old school way of keeping them cold. And that was in the caves beneath the city. Hell no. (laughs) These natural caverns provided a stable and cool environment all year long. And that meant that he could really ramp up production. To use the cave, which was right under the Mississippi River, all he had to do was expand the entrance a little bit and then travel about 40 feet underground. I already feel things going wrong. (sighs) Right? I know. And interestingly, there's so many different prehistoric bones and fossils that they've found under there. So think of that next time you have beer. I know. But anyway, when Adam died in 1862, one year after the Civil War started, his son, William Lump Sr., took over the business. And the war presented a forced hiatus briefly, and he actually supported the Union military efforts during the war. He really brought the business to the next level. By the late 1870s, Western Brewery was the largest in St. Louis, and it ranked 19th largest in the entire country producing 100,000 beer barrels annually. And that brought in what today is the equivalent of 27 million just a year. Wow. And so a couple of years earlier, they were still delivering these massive kegs by wagon just to local establishment. Wow. Yeah. But guess what happened in the late 1800s? Cars. Modern refrigeration. Oh. <laughs> and that meant that they could really be pioneers with shipping things coast to coast because they could afford to buy the refrigerated train cars. And that really transformed everything. But this also meant that those caves could be repurposed. But we're going to come back to that in a minute. <laughs> Ditch the caves, but okay. I know. Uh, fill those in, right? I'm going to introduce you to the Lemp Mansion. So let's go meet the family home. The land where the Lemp Mansion was built was actually originally purchased by William Lemp's father-in-law. In 1861, William married Julia Feichart, who by all accounts was a quiet, stoic, and kind woman. And though her family wasn't super loaded, they were comfortable, comfortable enough to buy this plot of land and build the grand Italianate home there. Okay. 
located in the Benton Park neighborhood of St. Louis, which was very different at the time that they were living there in the mid-1800s than it is now. The house was built in 1868. It's quite an imposing structure. Initially, it was a two-story brick mansion, technically four floors if you count the basement and the attic. And because people got around by horse and buggy, there were also several horse stables and carriages out back on the property. And some of the lower floors actually served as offices for the brewery because William wanted to live somewhere near his offices. And he thought that would probably make it easier to have some work-life balance. Or not, though. You know what they say. I know. Don't shit where you eat. (laughs) Yeah. That's not what I thought you were going to say, but you're right. So Jacob, aka Julia's dad, was on the title of the house, but William made so much more than him that he either was the one who actually paid for it or he helped him like buy it off when Jacob couldn't really afford to pay off the mortgage. And so they moved in about 10 years after it was built. So we know at least that they were occupying the house by then. And the parents did continue to live in the home on that top floor. And the same year that they moved in is also when the first funeral was held at the Lemp Mansion. Whoa. Yeah. And it was in the double parlor, which is the same room that future funerals to come would be held. And the parlor was really stunning. Julia commissioned a really elaborate ceiling mural inspired by her trips to Europe. So kind of imagine those grand old classic paintings you'd see in like Italian museums. And from that parlor, you could also see a grand new staircase that they had built to replace the original one because it was at a knee bending 45 degree angle. So by winding the stairs into this more graceful curve, it was easier to climb for anyone who was aging. But you could also get this like vertigo inducing glimpse of the tunnel-esque drop from the attic all the way down to the basement, Mm. which is cool, but also kind of eerie to me. Also, fun fact, we have another short king. The ceilings were 12 feet tall. I think some of them may have even been 14, but William was only 5'4". Damn. Just imagine how cavernous that must feel. I bet it feels like you're getting swallowed by the house when you entered, which reminds me of that magnetic pull we've talked about other haunted houses having too. I'm going to pivot for a second so that you can meet Julia and William's children who filled the home all of the years that we are about to move into. But forewarning, there are so many of them. So if you have a hard time keeping track of the names, please just holler and I will help you and our listeners stay on track with them. Okay. So starting in 1865, over the course of 18 years, Julia Lemp gave birth to a whopping eight kids. Half of them died strange deaths. The first child was Annie. The first son was born next, William Lemp Jr., and he goes by Billy followed by Lewis and then Charles and Frederick. They then had their second daughter and sixth child, Hilda. And the last two kids were significantly younger with the youngest boy being Edwin. And their last child was another daughter, Elsa, who was born in 1883. So at this point, the eldest daughter, Annie, was almost 20 years older than the littlest sister, Elsa. And Julia was now in her 40s. Okay, I think I got it. Over the course of those 18 years, There were also many changes occurring culturally. For some historical framework, so you can kind of imagine domestic life, trolleys were becoming a more popular mode of transportation. Bikes were still super frequently used, and so were horse-drawn buggies. And in 1889, gas street lamps were being installed throughout the city. Every single night, a town lamplighter had to go around the city and light various lamps with oils. By the 1890s, the mansion added an extensive radiator system into every single room in the home. So 
No longer did the staff have to go and constantly be lighting fires and traversing these freezing cold hallways getting from room to room. Wow. So it was officially the Gilded Age, and some of the signs of luxury that emerged through their interior design were as follows. The couple had separate bathrooms and another state-of-the-art facility, hot and cold running water, which was actually sent over through the brewery pipes. So I guess a perk of being so close to it. And this meant that household staff didn't need to fetch pails of water and bring it back and forth. We are now moving into the 1890s. And at this point, the brewery industrial plant is massive. And you can imagine that their view was of these huge chimneys puffing out lots of smoke. You'll hear the sound of horse hooves trotting on the cobblestone roads. But I don't think it was as peaceful as we would like to imagine it in the 21st century being nostalgic because can you imagine the ungodly amount of dung in the streets from that many horses passing through? Yeah, I don't know that I think it's peaceful at all. Oh, I'm like, oh, that sounds so cute. And then also just the horrible pollution of living at an industrial plant. But William could see his entire empire from his bedroom window. So when it was thriving, I'm sure that was a moment of pride, but also the pressure is right in his face. So it must have been a lot. And in 1892, the factory took up three city blocks and it was now tripling its production from when I last gave you an update. And sales are now at about 97 million in today's money annually. Mm, Wow. Guess how he got to work. You don't have to actually guess. I'll just tell you. (laughs) A corkscrew staircase that led to the basement and it fed into the intricate tunnel system, which had later been renamed as the Cherokee Cave Tunnels. And it could be accessed by those stairs as well as a brewery elevator at the opposite corner. So he didn't always take that way, but he took it when he wanted to go undisturbed and in private. The floor was stone and like really uneven. It was also approximately 55 degrees colder underground than whatever the outside temperature was. To me, it just sounds kind of unpleasant. But in this underground area, they had transformed it into this big entertainment setup that the whole family and their friends could enjoy as a recreation center, so to speak. There was a concrete lined swimming pool, a bowling alley, a little theater that they would use to put on performances. You could even see the painted wall scenery and the floor lights and kind of an elevated stage. So it's more like a finished basement than a cave tunnel system. No, it's a cave tunnel tunnel system. Oh, great. Okay, cool. You know, in a cave, how there's spikes coming down and it looks almost like spaghetti. That's the vibe. In some of the rooms, they did create arches where Adam Lemp had been using it to store his barrels. So some of it was a bit more finished, but it was not like a basement. It was I mean, 40 feet underground. But is it one open area or it's a bunch of little rooms? There's one really large open area that is almost a makeshift ballroom, but the other ones are slightly smaller. And then the swimming pool was heated because they used the pipes from the brewery funneling in there. But it's not like there's any windows and it wasn't like spa vibes where there's beautiful uplighting, in my opinion, at least. (laughs) But I've also only seen the dilapidated version of it. So maybe it did look much more beautiful back in the day. Okay. Now I'm going to give you and everyone listening a quick overview of the Lemp kids and their dating lives. Ooh. So Annie Lemp got married in the Lemp mansion, and it was kind of like the royal wedding of St. Louis. Somewhere along the way, though, things went south pretty quickly, I think within a year. And so Annie went to go stay out west to rest up. And apparently her husband tried to tattle to her mom that she was flirting with some other guy out there named Alexandra Conta. And whatever Annie said to her mom when she was confronted got her mom on board to help her file for divorce. 
And this Conta guy is actually who Annie ended up marrying just a couple years later once the divorce went through. And although everything worked out, I mean, she went on to publish two books and live in New York City with him and have children. And they seemed like a happy, supportive couple. But since she was the first lump to get married and the first one went so poorly, it made her parents extremely protective and just kind of sets the tone here. Yeah, that makes sense. Hilda was the second daughter, but sixth child. And she also got married in the late 1880s to Gustav Pabst of PBR fame. No way. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so you know who he is. Well, duh, yeah. Well, not him, but PBR. (laughs) (laughs) And he was based in Chicago and Milwaukee. This was also a little iffy at first because even though Gustav's dad was William's best friend, Gustav had just divorced the most famous Shakespearean actress of her time. Her name was Margaret Mather, and they had gotten a divorce because she was apparently seen publicly whipping him. Mm. And she actually died mid-performance only one year after he married Hilda. So like on stage. Whoa. Right? Did the families combine their beer companies? Well, that's not really what happened. So you'll hear about that a little bit as we go. Okay. Also in the 1890s, both of Julia's parents died in the home and their funerals were also held there in the double parlor, which was, of course, I'm sure really sad for them. But they were also really busy with all of their kids coming of age. And William Sr. was as busy as he ever was, but reaching a time when he was also starting to groom his sons to prepare to take over the business. And he actually had his heart set on making Frederick, the fourth born son, his successor from an early age. And it was clear that he was the favorite. Fred married in 1899 and had one child. His reputation was that, and I can corroborate this, he was the hottest son. And people called him a jolly good fellow, which meant he was really well liked. He was popular. He seems pretty even keeled and smart. And he was also the first lump brother to get married, which probably made his parents happy. And following right in his footsteps was the eldest brother, Billy, who married Lily May Lillian Handlin in 1899 as well. And she's better known as the lavender lady today because she apparently was obsessed with the color. Hmm. The legends are that she refused to wear anything else. And even her horses, saddles, the flowers, everything was always lavender. But that's sort of up for dispute and more on that in a minute. They had one child together, William Lump III. But things would spell disaster within just a few short years for that couple. So what was her husband, Billy, the oldest lump son, like? Good question. So he's not hot? I mean, just to give you like a picture of what he looks like, all of the kids had sort of lighter coloring, kind of bluish greenish eyes. And it's hard because there aren't that many photos of them and they're in black and white. So I can't get like a full picture of what they looked like. He was also short like his dad. And we always make this reference, but I don't see any better one far quadian hair yeah yeah okay that's fine but grumpy and a little bit lighter hair but not bad looking he was like cute enough whatever he also spent really lavishly and he had a reputation for drinking and partying a lot it seems like he wasn't living up to his father's expectations as the eldest son in that way and apparently he was also just really moody and unpredictable he ate dinner with a gun next to him what Weird. And then another point for him being a jerk is that he gave an allowance to Lillian that was $1,000 a day. And he said, if you ever want me to give you any money again, you better not come home until you've spent it all. I'm just sorry. (laughs) It's weird. Why would, why did he want that? I think he wanted her out of the house. And I also think he was off and also just using his power and financial wherewithal to control her. Maybe. I don't know. So overall, the lumps thrived until the new millennium. 
Everything started going really downhill, though, by 1901, when scandal and death officially creep into their lives. First, Frederick Lump, the favorite, had been sick with tuberculosis. And though he seemed to be recovering pretty well with his new family out in California, he relapsed and then died suddenly from heart failure. Mm. He was only 28 years old. And aside from the grief of losing a child, William Sr. also had to grapple with the now uncertain future of who was going to take over his business when he was gone. Wow. Yeah. So now needing to get his other sons more involved in the business, Charles, who was considered more mild-mannered than his brothers, was named treasurer of the brewery. And in 1904, the business got caught up in a big scandal. Here we go. They were raising money to pass a bill that basically let brewers skip inspections. What? Yeah. And William Sr. and Charles were both subpoenaed to testify about potentially illegal fundraising that they were involved in. Okay. At the same time, William Sr. was being sued for $400,000, and then he suffered another personal loss. His best friend and in-law, Captain Pabst, also the PBR, guy passed away from cancer oh no yeah so he was suffering from extreme distress and depression and it was very evident to most people in his life he would only use the underground tunnels to get to work to avoid all interaction and he sobbed regularly that's sad a few weeks after those stressors on february 13th which was a saturday william senior woke up ate a light breakfast and then retired to his room No one in the family was home with him, but a servant girl heard a muffled shot and tried to get into the room, which was locked. No. And she ran to tell his secretary, who then got the door open somehow and saw that William Sr. had fired three shots with his gun, two of which were just at his wardrobe. And someone else then went to the brewery to get his sons, the youngest, Edwin, who was 24 at the time, and Billy, the eldest, who stayed with him for a full hour before he passed away. And they then had to go themselves to announce it at the brewery. And Elsa was with Annie in New York when they received the news. I'm sure Hilda was at home with her family, too. For a second, I thought you were saying somebody else shot the third bullet, but he he did it. Yes. Okay. So William Lump, the patriarch, was dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And William gave his entire net worth to his wife who he trusted completely to divvy it up appropriately and fairly among the children and his grandchildren. He'd written it 12 days prior on February 1st. Mm. And Julia's value was now thought to be close to 20 million in 1904, which is close to 700 million today. Wow. Yeah. Two years later in 1906, Julia died after fighting an illness. Uh Uh-oh. So the kids lost both of their parents and one of their brothers within just a few short years. At this point, we've now had several funerals and deaths occur within the Lump Mansion. Meanwhile, Billy and his wife Lillian were having major marital issues. So he moved out to a hotel and then eventually kicked her out of the house abruptly. To get his wife out, it meant getting his son out too. And then he technically had to sue himself because it was owned by the company. And that was one of the things that made the press go absolutely wild. And There was a lot of conjecture and like random rumors that started to be spread about him. And it's really hard to separate fact from fiction. But the trial 
was still going on by 1909. So while on the stand, Lillian testified that Billy was abusive. He would sometimes push her and he gave her a black eye once. She also corroborated that he did in fact carry a gun everywhere. And she said that he even slept with it under his pillow with the muzzle pointing at her. Yikes. Okay. To further paint a picture of his temper, there were accusations that he shot alley cats from his bedroom window, to which he retorted, only the ones that were keeping me up. Oh, boy. On the stand, Lillian's favorite color came up, which I think is absurd. Like, why? But when asked why it was a problem for Billy, he goes, the constant wearing of lavender made her conspicuous. It wasn't the color I objected to. It was the almost constant wearing. And she said, I don't ever remember wearing lavender in my life. But did did she or she just liked everything else to be lavender? I think she liked purple. From what I read, she liked purple, but it wasn't like she only ever wore it. Also, what else is she going to do with all that money? She has to like kind of organize it, give herself some structure. She's like, only buy it if it's purple. I don't know. So when Lillian was out of the house, both during the divorce proceedings and also while they were married, probably Billy was having affairs, unsurprisingly, with other women. And here is a legend about one of Billy's famous parties that actually I think is one of the more upsetting parts of today's episode. Billy would invite and hire sex workers to come to the parties and he spent super lavishly and was a womanizer. So his parties would get very raunchy. And this is where the big rumor comes in. He'd gotten one of the guests, likely a sex worker, pregnant. And when she gave birth to the baby, he had developmental disabilities and she insisted that Billy raise him. He brought him to the Lump Mansion, but he ultimately had the staff raise him in the attic and they kept him confined up there. This is just rumor. This is just rumor. And I'm going to tell you how this rumor originated and the things that might support it versus the other end of it and the other rumors that also came out of it. So there's basically like three different options here. Two of them are that he existed, but they say that he kind of lived a really different life. And then the other one is that this is all hearsay and just a made up story. This first one with Billy being the father is the one that I'm explaining now. So this supposedly illegitimate son has not been verified by official birth records or anything. But according to a historian local to St. Louis, Joe Gibbons, he interviewed a former chauffeur and nanny from Lemp, and both of them in separate interviews confirmed the existence of the boy. And as I said, the child was born with some developmental differences, and some say that he lived into his 30s which would mean that he didn't die until the 1940s. And this is all supposedly happening in the attic while he's being cared for by the staff. Hmm. Today, paranormal investigators often go into the attic right away and they bring toys, which they say when they're not looking, get strewn about by some unseen entity. There's also a plot in the family mausoleum that just reads Lemp. Why not give him a first name? To me, that feels so dehumanizing, stripping this person of their ability to have their own personhood. But also, again, maybe it's just a random plaque. Yeah. Though people do say that it looks like it is like someone's buried there. Hmm. It is possible that the plaque is for the Lemp's stillborn son because there are records that Julia gave birth to an infant before she had Annie and the rest of the children. So I found something on Find My Grave that leads me to believe this is a likely possibility, but not totally sure either. And then I found another story that has been passed down from an alleged party goer in the early 1900s. According to the legend, and that's really all it is since I heard it on the podcast, Parcasts Haunted Places, her name was Daisy. And this is her version of events. Imagine this wild party with lots of champagne flowing. Everyone's dressed to the nines, but it's all happening within this like musty 
pleasure palace 40 feet below ground. Mm. This woman jumps in the pool without changing into her swimming costume. And because of that, she's kind of struggling to swim in the like corseting and stuff. And so one of Billy's friends has to help her out. When he says, why don't you go borrow some of Lillian's clothing upstairs? He also says, be careful of the ghost. They're always calling down from upstairs. And she kind of brushes it off and she makes her way upstairs through the tunnel up the staircase and the servants help her find something to change into when she hears a faint sound that's a bit like a child in distress. The staff assures her that no one's upstairs because it was just the servants' quarters and they were all still working, but she was sure that she heard something. Though she couldn't really tell where it was coming from, only that it was above her and it seemed like it was from the far corner above her. Hmm. She leaves the room and she ditches the staff, goes up the staircase to the next floor, and it was a hallway more narrow than the floor below with doors on each side lining it and one small one at the end of the hallway. And that's when she heard a scream from the farthest door and she swore that it belonged to a child. And that's why she was so determined to find it. And then Billy's friend who helped her out of the pool somehow like resurfaces or reemerges and he tries to calm her down because she's speaking really quickly saying, there's no ghost, it's a kid. It's a kid who looked like he was five and he's stuck up there. And so all of a sudden Billy's friend who was like flirty at first then gets really stern with her and basically threatened her to not say anything. Hmm. So... It's lost to history, whether or not this person existed in this way, but it's obviously really heartbreaking if that's how Billy treated his son his entire life. Yeah, I I don't know. It sounds like one of those things that could just work its way through the rumor mill and it gets twisted to this very dark version. Totally. hearing it now, but sad either way. Yeah, so that's a good transition. And the reason why I didn't lead with it was because it's the theory of a woman who leads ghost tours at the house now. And she actually started by running history tours, but there was so much demand for ghost tours and she's a psychic. So she started offering them and she doesn't have any historical records to back it up, but this is what her theory is. Okay. She thinks that there was a boy there and people often did see him peering out the attic window, which is where these rumors potentially started from. But she thinks that it actually wasn't Billy's son. She thinks that it was the son of William Sr. and Jr. Sorry, who's Jr.? She thought it was the son of William Sr. and Julia, who would have been in their mid and late 50s at the time that he was born. And he, she thinks, was born with developmental differences. And she theorizes that the Lumps didn't publicize his existence to protect him from getting bullied. And he did have free reign of the entire property, including all of the horse stables and the grounds. But he just preferred to hang out in the attic and he liked small spaces. So he enjoyed being able to like curl up in the dormer windows up there. And she claims that he passed away when he was a teenager in 1910 from a fall down the stairs. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Mm. But I'm going to shift back to Billy Jr. again. And now that we're in the 1910s. So post-divorce, his son, Billy III, is gone off with his mom. Both of his parents are dead. And now his other brother, Louis, has decided to leave the business and St. Louis behind. Similarly, Edwin, the youngest son, didn't like the mansion and the stress of the business. And so when both of their parents died, Edwin bought a suite at the St. Regis Apartments and he invited his sister Elsa to share it with him. And she moved in. So in 1910, Edwin was asked by the press if he missed his old life. And he said, no, it was simply that I saw no need to make money. It seems to me that this is the curse of America. Everyone is always making more money. I was confident that I could organize my life in a way I wanted to. Of course, I was fortunate to have that income. Tell him, Edwin. Yeah, I like him the best. So at this stage, 
Elsa was the wealthiest single woman in St. Louis, and by 1910, she was about to get married. So Edwin decided to go build a home on a plot of land near his favorite camping spot. And the compound is stunning. I'm not going to explain it, but if you want to look it up, it's called Cragwold. Billy's other brother, Charles, was the only other brother involved in the company by 1910, and he was serving as the treasurer and VP of the company. But Charles didn't live in the Lump Mansion yet, at least. And meanwhile, in 1911, Billy actually decided to transform the mansion into a commercial space, since it was ultimately up to him to decide how to use the home now that he was running the brewery. And at that point resembled more an Italianate bank or office building. So Billy moved away with his new wife, Ellie, to the country. And they built a compound called, ironically, All's Well. And that meant he was going to work far less. So throughout the 19-teens, it's worth noting that he did a fine job building the brand. And he got people like Teddy Roosevelt to promote the beer in ads. It was also the first beer to get delivered via airplane under his reign. So they continued to be pioneers in their industry. But most agree that the business just did not thrive as much with Billy in charge as it had with his father and his grandfather before them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So before I dive in to all things prohibition, I'm going to pivot to put the spotlight on Elsa, the youngest child. Okay. In 1910, Elsa got married to Thomas H. Wright at her sister's palatial Pabst mansion in Milwaukee. And upon her marriage, she was to receive $100,000, which today would be over $3 million, and then the rest would be hers by age 30. Hmm. And this was dictated by Julia's will. Thomas was a well-known businessman, but he got wealthy on his own as the CEO of a metal company. Even though he was successful, there was gossip around the city that she actually paid for her ring and <gasps> wedding dress herself. No. I knew that was going to elicit a big gasp from you. <laughs> and it's really not a big deal at all, but it's funny. No, it's not. So when they got back to St. Louis, Thomas and Elsa, after their honeymoon in 1911, Elsa bought them a big home in the trendy and wealthy neighborhood of Central West End on Portland Place. And it was a gated community with big landscaped manners. And by all accounts, their relationship was not harmonious. However, she got pregnant three years after they were married. But sadly, the baby was stillborn in 1914. And she struggled after this. Mm-hmm. And doctors would call what she was experiencing spells, which referred to feelings of melancholy, depression, nervousness. And she was also prescribed, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, laudanum. And that's something that many women of the time were advised to take to treat things like cramps and basically everything under the sun, because apparently postpartum depression also calls for it. Yeah, I was going to say. And the primary ingredient is opium. And you literally didn't even need to get a prescription for it. So that's not great. Cool. So yeah. (laughs) 
Fast forward to 1918 and Elsa and Thomas were separated. She officially filed for divorce in 1919 and in the proceedings, she claimed that he quote unquote destroyed her peace and happiness and caused her great mental anguish. Her doctor also echoed that testifying that in quotes, she'd been suffering for three years from mental and physical breakdown and he attributed that to domestic troubles. So the judge ruled in her favor in under an hour. And during their separation, she changed her will, removing Thomas from it so that he couldn't inherit anything. Elsa was doing really well in New York City, probably visiting her sister Annie a year after the divorce when Thomas followed her up there. And whatever happened between them, they left reunited and got married. Yes, a second time in 1920. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. In their new home, which was at 13 Horton's Place, It is a Georgian colonial and was built in 1901, and it's actually where Elsa's ghost is frequently sighted and not at the Lump Mansion. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So this street had several homes with reports of hauntings on it, and it did even in the 1920s when Elsa and Thomas moved there. Quick background on it. It was named after the daughter of a neighbor of the developer of the neighborhood who died as a young child. And so the staff and other guests who visited the house would hear someone saying, Daddy. Mm. Regularly. Disembodied, obviously. No. (laughs) And seances were also all the rage. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, spiritualism was taking off at the same time as suffragettes were beginning to fight for women's rights. Interesting connection there, but I won't be annoying about that right now. So another house was just down the road called the Lambert Mansion, and they would host a lot of them apparently. And there were tons of reports of specters or shadows wandering down the hallways and then just disappearing. And they later found in that house a boarded up door around where these shadow figures were manifesting. What was behind the door? I don't know what was behind it. Dun, dun. And then just down the road, Tennessee Williams wrote The Glass Menagerie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's a Southern Gothic and it makes a lot of sense that he wrote it there. Okay. So creepy new neighborhood sidebar is now over and we can go back to the newlyweds. They had an eight-day honeymoon and then they quickly settled into the home. But within four days at the house, so 12 days into the marriage, Elsa was found dead. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Yep. With a gunshot wound through her heart. I thought it was going to be another divorce. What happened? All right. So the actual death record even says self-inflicted. So... Mm. I'm going to interrogate that a little more because I'm just not convinced. And I'm going to lay out basically what happened from Thomas's perspective and what unfolded. Are you ready? I'm ready. And I want to give another shout out to Rebecca Pittman's book because it was really instrumental in gathering all of this information. So if you're listening, thank you for pulling these records, Rebecca. Okay. So the couple returned on Wednesday and on Friday, Elsa went to a concert with friends. They said that she looked happy and healthy. And Thomas didn't go because he had work to do. So when she got home, she went to the kitchen at around 5 or 6 p.m. And she said hi to her cook, who said that Elsa seemed good and normal. And then about an hour later at 7 p.m., when they sat down for dinner, the cook and a maid both said that Elsa looked nervous. And Thomas said that she barely ate and was feeling nauseous, possibly because she was getting her period. Mm. They retired to their shared bedroom, though they slept in different twin beds with a bedside table between them at around 9 p.m. And according to Thomas, Elsa was getting up all night, not feeling well. When he got up at 8 a.m., he asked her how she was feeling and she said, fine. And she thought that she would stay in bed for a while, to which he said, that's wise. He says he then went to go take a bath and started drawing the water in the adjoining bathroom. 
And as he began to run the water, he quickly came back out to grab a change of clothes from his dresser before going back to the bathroom. Something's coming. I sense it. Yeah. Two to five minutes later, so very short, he heard a, in quote, a very, very slight, sharp noise. It wasn't a thud or a dull noise, end quote. At which point he stuck his head back out the bathroom door, peering into the bedroom to ask Elsa if she was okay. And though he says she was looking right at him, she didn't answer. So he asked again, did you call or throw something at the door? And because she didn't answer again, he walked closer to the bed. And that's when Thomas saw the revolver lying beside her, but not clutched in her hand. He said that he rang or screamed for two maids. And they said that didn't happen until 8.45. So what was he doing for 25 minutes or whose clock was off? None of that story made sense. I gotta be honest. Thomas, you did it. Then one of the maids got upstairs and she saw that Thomas was in the hallway, but she didn't go into the room. And she asked what was the matter. And he said, something so awful, I can't tell you. Mm. And he asked her to ring for the doctor. However, according to the doctor, it was Mr. Wright himself who he spoke with on the phone at around 8.30 a.m. And he said Thomas kept it vague, saying something terrible has happened. Another maid testified that she also heard his cries for help and came running and was with Elsa, who was still alive when she went in there, though Elsa did not say anything and her eyes were partly closed. Yet another maid also said she went into the room at about a quarter to nine, so the same timeline, and she said, in quote, Elsa was lying on the bed and she wasn't struggling or anything and she took three long breaths before dying. Did he ever turn off the bathwater? Great question that they never asked. And so here's what the doctor said. He found Elsa in bed, dead with a pistol wound, noting a powder mark, wound of entrance on the left edge of the sternum. And apparently this implied how she was holding the gun. And he said that it seemed consistent with self-infliction. But when you think about it, it means that her elbow had to have been cocked up really high, which is definitely possible, just sort of odd. And he said that there was practically no external bleeding and no hemorrhaging from the mouth, which a really horrible thing to have to fact check, but I did see that that's common if it's not a mouth wound. And the doctor said that Thomas seemed overcome with grief, but was still able to tell his version of events. And he also noted how orderly the room was. Yeah, that's confusing because if there was a struggle, why was the room not a mess? Well, he had plenty of time to clean up. And I'm assuming there's not DNA evidence stuff at that point. No. But what about things like rigor mortis or whatever? Well, so that's a good question because the doctor did confirm that she was still warm when he arrived, but it does take a full two hours for it to set in. But he he also noted that it is really strangely quick for things to have unfolded like that because he had only been out of the room for two minutes or something. And wouldn't he have, if he went to get his clothes on the nightstand, wouldn't he have seen her in the bedroom with the handgun Mm -hmm. to make his story plausible? Other weird thing about the gun, one maid told the officer that the revolver was lying on a couch that was about 10 feet from the bed on the opposite side. So basically opposite from the bathroom. And neither the officer nor the maid claimed to know who put it there. When they asked who the gun belonged to, Thomas said, in quotes, I judge it belonged to her. It didn't belong to me. I didn't even know she had one in the house. But when the officer asked him earlier, Thomas said, It's Elsa's. She usually keeps it in the bedside table drawer. So which is it, bro? Did you know about the gun or did you not? And then when asked about the placement of the gun, Thomas said that he didn't know how it got from the bed to the couch. And the officer implied that he thought Mr. Wright moved it in a flurry or a state of shock, even though he wasn't told that by Thomas himself. 
just nothing here is sitting right. Like, this is so confusing. The timing's no. off. Did How long did it take police to get there? Everything's off with Thomas, but also why is no one interrogating it further if all of the stuff is off? So fun fact, though, 911 wasn't invented until 1967. Wow, that is a fun fact. I did not know that. Yeah, right? So emergency situations were dealt with very differently, but this is still abnormal. By 11.15 a.m., Thomas's attorney was already fielding questions from reporters. He apparently called him at the same time that he called the doctor at around 8.30 a.m., as well as his two sisters, who came right over. And the attorney notified the coroner. The officers didn't arrive until 11.20 a.m., and they only went to the scene of the crime because a family friend of the police chief heard about it through the attorney. Word travels fast. And so they went over there. Hmm. And then Thomas's attorney also rang a judge who he knew. And he called his office at the request of the family to hold an emergency inquest at the home. So something is really not right about it, partially because it was so hurried, but also because they didn't ask really basic questions to clear up any of the discrepancies in the timing or why the gun was on the couch or why the maids who were not that far only heard him screaming, but not any gunshots. But here's the kicker. The verdict was signed while it was still blank. And prior to the jury of six men actually hearing the evidence to make a decision. And so they had signed at the bottom of the inquest. And then the judge ruled it a suicide from hemorrhage due to a gunshot wound of the chest, self-inflicted. And he listed the time of death at 845, even though we know she was still alive, according to the maid's testimonies. I'm just so lost. What the hell is going on in the House of Commons? Yeah. So... The six men were sworn in and then they viewed the body. They signed the blank verdict and were dismissed. And then later they heard the verdict and the judge filled in the info from there once he'd already received their signatures. And the coroner covered for this and said it was a normal procedure for cases where suicide appeared self-evident. But this is not self-evident. And also according to papers, even in the time, this was not standard. So are we in agreement? We think it's Thomas or what's happened? What do we, what do you think? I'm obviously not a forensic expert, neither are you, even though we would like to think we are. But I do think that there is enough, plenty of reasonable doubt to look into this further rather than just quickly declaring it a self or apparent evident suicide, both because of the gap of time and the inconsistencies and stuff. So I think at the very least it should be undetermined. And I do think it's possible that she died by suicide. I don't think, though, that her prior depression should have been enough to be evidence for that on its own because she had survived many bouts of depression. She had survived a stillbirth, divorce, separation, all the painful losses from her family members. So why did she choose to do it within that two-minute interval when she had plans that day with Edwin and had just gotten home from her honeymoon? Confusing. I don't know. I think it's possible they had a fight when they got home and that that might be why her mood changed right after the concert, after she had fun with her friends. Maybe it had to do with him kind of falling back into the pattern of being dismissive and abandoning her and then regardless of why they argued maybe the gun was out someone threatened someone else maybe they weren't even taking it seriously and it was an accident maybe it was a suicide i don't know but i think that there's way too much for it to just be that clean cut one and done yeah and signing whatever that paper was before anybody made a decision is weird yeah so regardless she passed away and wright was entitled to half of her money <laughs> while the rest was divided between her surviving siblings who decided to donate their portion to the children's hospital, which was her wish. That's nice. Yeah. Do we know anything else about Thomas? Like after that? Well, he went on to live a normal life and he was remarried by 1925. 
and he died in 1961 without any children. So Elsa was the fourth member of the Lemp family and the second sibling of her generation to die in this short time frame. Meanwhile, her older sisters, Annie and Hilda, as well as her big brothers, Billy, Louis, Charles, and Edwin were still alive at this point. But let's just get back on track with my timeline and do a sharp turn to prohibition quickly. Okay. So we have to rewind a few years. The U.S. Senate proposed the 18th Amendment in 1917, which was basically banning alcohol with 2.75 ABV in an effort to preserve grain during World War One. By 1920, the country officially went dry. And so obviously for a brewery dynasty, that's really bad. And business was about to get really rough. Bootleggers were profiting big time and breweries were struggling big time. So speakeasies were all the rage in general. It led to a massive increase in criminal activity, even though the ultimate goal was supposed to be to reduce crime. Alongside prohibition was a lot of anti-German sentiment because of World War One. So the Lemp family was kind of trying to deal with both of these things at once. And a lot of the issues were basically just falling right onto Billy's lap. It was mostly just his problem because Lewis had moved on to NYC, New York City. I hate that I just said NYC. Edwin was out at his farm. And then even Charles had moved on and decided to get into the car business, which was very smart because it was 1921 and the automobile industry was taking off. And he actually helped found Petrol 66, which is like a huge gas company. And Annie and Hilda were both with their own respective families. Interestingly, Hilda's husband of PBR, he kept it afloat by leasing the manufacturing plant to Harley Davidson oh. and then diversifying by selling Wisconsin cheese. All right. Billy, on the other hand, tried to make up for the loss by producing non-alcoholic beers. Oh, please, Billy. I know. It just did not have the same appeal. So eventually he sells the trademark for one of their most successful beers, which still exists today, Falstaff Beer. But when he tried to auction off the rest, they were only selling for eight cents to the dollar. Mm. Yeah. And he didn't see any end in sight for prohibition. So in 1921, he made this statement to the press. We have done nothing since prohibition. I am tired of seeing all the weeds in the courtyard and the dust upon the windows. I am out of this brewery business for good. I am 54 years old and it is time to quit. One employee said that the brewery didn't have any farewell ceremonies. We just came to work one morning and found the place locked up. It never opened again, he said. It's kind of depressing. Very. And so a public auction of the Lump Brewing plant, which at this point spanned 11 city blocks, was held on June 28th, 1922. And they sold most of it for a really small fraction of what it should have been worth to the International Shoe Company. But that famous Lump sign still remained on one of the towers. And Billy was still rich. He had tons of investments and money. But still, the pressure as the oldest son, who was never even his dad's first choice to run the company, and also as a third generation family business, it just must have been awful to have to liquidate the company. Shortly after the sale, Billy also put up All's Well for auction and he planned to just travel with his second wife, Ellie, for a while. But the next few months were marked by frequent visits to doctors and hospitals. He was complaining of constant aches, pains, and chills, and he was kind of behaving like his dad was within his last few weeks. While trying to sell All's Well, he was actually living with his wife at a hotel and his son, Billy III, was back in St. Louis too. On the morning of December 29th, 1922, Billy came to his office in Lemp Mansion, which was in one of the large parlor rooms, because there were still things to wrap up with the sale. And the current VP of the company at the time was there, as was his personal secretary, and he'd had a relatively normal conversation with each of them. He then spoke to his wife really briefly on the phone, but within minutes of hanging up, William Lemp Jr., Billy, had died. 
by a self-inflicted gunshot wound at the age of 55 years old. Wow. And when his son, Billy III, was made aware, he came bursting into the office and hugged his father, exclaiming, you knew I knew it. I was afraid this was coming. That's really sad. I know. And there was no note. Speaking of Billy III, it's not really clear what happened to Allswell, but it sounds like the sale eventually went through or it had to be auctioned off. But years later, Billy III rented a room out of it from the new owners. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really sad. Like he just wanted to be home. But as with Lump tradition, Billy's funeral was held in the twin parlors of the Lump mansion and he left everything to his wife and son. And today, his wife, Ellie's portrait, sits at the top of the first set of stairs at the Lemp Mansion, watching over the landing. And many guests report hearing moans of pain and sadness when no one else is with them. Mm. And Billy made his brother, Charles, the executor of his estate, and he decided to move back into the mansion. So we're talking about Charles here. Okay. And he wanted to undo all the work Billy did to make it into offices and turn it back into a home. So... By 1929, Charles is back in the house. He's unmarried and he spent most of his time traveling the world, collecting art. The rumor has it he was using the cave system as kind of a makeshift fireproof vault for the art, but there were also vaults in the home, so it's possible that's not true. Other than that, he restored it back to the way that he remembered it by removing all the temporary walls, taking out an elevator, bringing back the winding stairs his mother loved, and then even arranging 10 chairs around the dining table potentially representing each family member gathering around for a meal that they would never share. Dark, dark house. And while the bottom floors reflected the opulent glory days, the upper floors were mainly just used as storage, holding things from the family's past. Oh, that's creepy. And many of the rooms also looked out at the old lump signage that still stood tall on the tower of the plant, but didn't exist. That also feels creepy. Mm -hmm. And then one last creepy sidebar here. One of Charles's good friends was Vincent Price, a famous horror film actor who was in The House on the Haunted Hill. Do you know it? I don't think I do. So it was shot in the brutalist Frank Lloyd Wright home, which is now famous for its appearance in Blade Runner. But The House on Haunted Hill is an old Hollywood haunted movie, but it was strangely released a few months before Dr. Harold Perelson killed his wife in what's dubbed the Los Feliz Murder Mansion, a house that's right below it, literally one hairpin turn away from it in real life. Hmm. So creepy connections all around but he frequented the mansion and hung out with charles regularly and allegedly said that it, the lump mansion was the perfect haunted house setting well there you go yeah so who's left in the lump family sorry no good question so after a decade passes it's 1931 and charles's brother lewis dies at the age of 61 of natural though somewhat unexpected causes and then another decade passes when in 1939 annie the eldest of the Lump children, passed away at the age of 74. And all things considered, she lived a normal and happy life. So this left Charles, Hilda, and Edwin as the sole survivors by the early 1940s. Wow. Even their nephew, Billy III, had passed away from a heart attack oh, no. in his early 40s in 1943. Damn. Mm-hmm. And by the mid-40s, Charles was very reclusive and suffering from a few different ailments. He was really paranoid, super germophobic. He would shower up to six times a day. And he even started washing money before he would handle it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He also had severe arthritis. So he turned one of the parlor rooms into his bedroom once he wasn't able to get up and down the stairs, even with the help of his cane. By the late 40s, he had a reputation as a total shut-in, virtually never leaving the home and just staying put with his beloved dog. Hmm. In the early morning 
hours of May 10th, 1949, when he was 77 years old, Charles Lump's groundskeeper, Mr. Bittner, who lived in a converted cottage slash carriage house behind the mansion with his wife, he noticed that Charles didn't eat the breakfast he had put out for him in front of his bedroom door. And eventually, when there was no answer on the other side of the door, Mr. Bittner went into the room and found Charles dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Oh, no. Another one. Mm-hmm. How many is the count at now? Four. Both Williams. Both Williams, Charles, and then Elsa died tragically. Frederick also did, but not from gun violence. So he alerted the authorities, as well as Charles's niece and nephew. Did you just say niece? <laughs> what did I say? It's possible. <laughs> Charles's niece and nephew. Frederick Lump's daughter and her husband, who was actually Hilda's son, which makes them first cousins. Oh, no. But they're married. And he was the one that discovered the note from Charles. He was the only Lump to leave one. It read, in case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. Wow. He didn't want to be changed, washed, or anything. He didn't want any services, notices of death, or obituaries published. He also already paid the funeral home in full. The murkiest and disturbing part of the story, I think, has to do with his dog. For years, there were rumors that Charles shot his dog before he had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. But did anybody see the dog after? For years, no one could confirm it. And they would just hear like random barks and things that were kind of more of the paranormal nature. But according to Rebecca Pittman, she spoke with the current owners and they spoke with the Bittners shortly after the sale. And they confirmed that there was indeed a dog who had been killed why would they make that up yeah i mean it makes sense to me that it would be the most common report of a residual haunting people can hear a gunshot but a really sharp one it doesn't sound distant at all followed by like a cane thumping against the stairs and then whimpering sounds so the authorities alerted edwin lump who was out at his home cragwold and he dutifully followed all of his brother's wishes charles left everything to edwin and his nieces and nephews and their kids and at the time of his death his assets were around 38 million in today's money and the St. Louis Union Trust Company and Edwin were the executors of his estate, and they chose to remove and keep most of the expensive art, but pretty much everything else went up in probate. And I was really disturbed by this fact. The probate records showed that the Lemp Mansion was just filled with guns. Edwin chose to either sell or lease the home. It's hard to figure out which, but he basically had no hand in it. And just three years after this, Hilda passed away at the age of 74 from natural causes. So he's the only one now. And by the early 1950s, Lump Mansion was converted into a boarding house. By then, all but one of the carriage houses were torn down and more and more industry was replacing the residential parts of the neighborhood. And at the same time, a man named Lee Hess, who came from the pharmaceutical industry, bought a mansion nearby because it granted him access to the caves, which he then turned into a museum meets theme park attraction. And he and his partner actually ended up only living out of two rooms of that massive home because they couldn't finance the whole thing while they were also trying to rebuild this underground cave playground, whatever you want to call it. And it almost cost him his entire fortune, but they did manage to do it. And they kept it running for 10 years until 1960, when the Missouri Highway Department bought the land to build Highway 55, and he lost access to the caves. They were then boarded up, although looky-loos today have discovered that you would think they'd be filled in, but they weren't. And there were remnants from the Lemps, including a pool that is now empty, which was probably the Lemps swimming pool back in the day. Creepy. It was more like a landmark that was just like a little more interactive than most. Okay. Mr. Hess did try to convince 
the government agency to circumvent the Demental and Lemp mansions with the help of the local preservation society. They were successful, but the rest of the nearby mansions were like totally destroyed. And when I say that the highway was built right behind Lemp Mansion, I mean its backyard, which is just another factor that deterred boarders from occupying and renting rooms. And all of the tragedies took place in the home. That led to rumors of ghosts and curses that scared off a lot of potential renters. And I will say, though, that this like narrative of the physical house being cursed, it's terrifying, but I feel like it kind of discounts the idea of inherited illnesses and also the contagion effect that we know suicide can trigger. Curses aside, though, the sheer amount of ghost stories from different people passing through is just astounding. And one stuck out to me in particular during the boarding house days, and there isn't much information out there about them. It's all I could find. So I'm just going to read it to you. I found it through Rebecca Pittman's book. And someone wrote into her submitting a story that her uncle used to tell her. Okay. So here it is. He remembered a strange woman who lived there at the time, Mary. She was always talking to herself and kept a list of everyone's movements. She had hundreds of cheap notebooks filled with entries such as, Hank lost his shoelace last night in the basement. Or Donna ate oatmeal again at 7.05 this morning. She had all these notes about someone named Ellie. My uncle said no one named Ellie lived there, but here were all these entries about Ellie's movements. Ellie keeps leaving the water running in the tub. Ellie won't shut the curtains. One said Ellie was looking for her sapphire hair comb again. It's behind the brick. He lived there about eight months and then moved out. That's the end of the submission. And of course, this must be referring to Billy's second wife, Ellie, whose portrait, many say, moans or is responsible for the moaning sounds. Oh, I was thinking Elsa because the water was running. Oh, that's another possibility. I mean, maybe it is Elsa and she has a nickname for her. Right. And maybe it's both of them doing different things. I mean, it creeps me out because I'm like, can vintage paintings be haunted? Why not? So we'll revisit very quickly the last surviving lump of his generation slash William Sr.'s empire, Edwin. He lived out his days happily with a companion at Cragwold until he died peacefully at the age of 90 in 1970. He asked the caretaker of his property who had been with him for about 30 years to burn all of the family ledgers of family history, diaries, documents, the drawing and ideas that built Lemp Brewery to begin with, paintings, frames, almost any other keepsakes on the property upon his death. He was a loyal employee and friend, and he kept everything private for Edwin, so there's still a lot of questions about the family that remain unanswered. One of the strange rumors that I'm not even going to go into, but it's a super persistent narrative and always comes up when you search the Lump Mansion, is that people think that all of William's descendants have died out. But if you follow Hilda's lineage alone, it is clear that there are still many in existence today. Hilda's granddaughter, who was named Elsa, died in 2020, and her obituary reads, Elsa will be remembered for her uncompromising devotion to her children, her love of travel, her renowned bratwurst parties, and her inherited appreciation for beer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it also mentioned that she was preceded in death really sadly by her granddaughter, so Hilda's great-great-granddaughter, who died of alcohol poisoning in 2009 while out at school. That's and terrible. I know. And Today, her parents are advocates for making the drinking age 18 because they believe the secreted nature of college consumption sets kids up more likely to overindulge and then be afraid to seek help because all of the punitive responses that you'd face. I mean, obviously, it's not necessarily connected at all. It's just really sad. But my point is, is that Lewis, Annie, and Hilda 
all went on to have families of their own. And while the ghost stories about the haunted house, I feel like people think will be more conveniently wrapped up or extra scary if they only exist in the past, but that just isn't true. And I think it's also related to how these older generational families tend to have the like one home, the one estate that like embodies their bloodline. So let's wrap up by talking about what's going on with the place now. In 1973, Richard Pointer was working on a road crew, this random guy in the town, outside of Lump Mansion, and his son, Richard Jr., always dreamt of transforming an old landmark into a restaurant. It, at the time, was like a rundown flop house, but he saw potential given its history. So even then, there were rumors that it was haunted. But one day, he decides to knock on the door, and he saw that even though it was like kind of filthy, he felt like they could probably repair it. So they bought the home in 1975 with the intention of restoring it and turning it into a restaurant. And the inn part of it didn't open until 1990. But during the renovations, they found all these old vaults that are actually now used as smaller rooms, like a bathroom and a gift shop. And they were housing all of these original pieces, like old chandeliers and amazing different features from the home. Of course, a lot of the workers reported strange sounds, paranormal activity, most commonly seeing like dark figures coming into doorways and then sitting down to dinner. So probably the men of the family. And there are also reports still to this day of phantom smells that remind people of decay and death. But eventually they finished the renovations and the Pointer family has been running it as a restaurant and a hotel, wedding venue and ghost tour experience ever since. When you walk into the restaurant, you notice that it's designed to evoke yesteryear and feel like you're in this formal dining room of an old wealthy family at the turn of the century. Most of the rooms have been converted into bedrooms for guests on the upper levels, and they're named after the family members. One of them is called the Lavender Suite or something. And as I mentioned earlier, there are so many ghost stories about this place, so I can't tell you all of them. But one that really creeped me out is that when people are sitting down to enjoy a meal, they'll look at the wall and see shadows mm. moving around as if they're also enjoying conversation over dinner together projected there, but there's no one actually next to them. That's creepy. Yeah. And of course, aside from the caves being boarded up, the crawl space where a little boy was seen from the window and those dormers has been boarded over. And because this is Dark House, I thought that I would end on one final ghost story from a patron named Patrice. And this story also comes from that episode of Haunted Places that I mentioned earlier. She went to the restaurant and sat down on a stool at the bar, ordering a lager with her dinner. Of course, it's her specialty. And she noticed that there were two guys sitting next to her and they were being kind of annoying and rude, sizing up all of the women in the restaurant. Anyway, the meal goes on and eventually she has to get up to use the restroom. So she asks the bartender to watch her drink and he agrees, of course. So she, off she goes. And the bathroom is down the hall. And you know when you're at a restaurant in one of these old homes or like a large hotel or something and you wander off to find the bathroom and all of a sudden the lively chatter dies down and you're really aware of just being totally alone. Yeah. That's the impression that I get about this place, even if you're not that far from the main dining room. So she goes into a stall and she instantly starts hearing scratches on the other side of the stall door. No. But as far as she could tell, no one else was with her and no one had been in the hallway that she noticed when she entered either. But despite that, she says, someone's in here, so the stall's occupied and... When she said that, the scratching paused for a second before it started up again, but this time more vigorously. And she tried to ignore it until the door started rattling and she couldn't and the lights start flickering. And at this point, she thinks it's one of those guys who was sitting near her at the bar messing with her and trying to scare her. So she tells him to stop. But at this point, it's totally dark and she swears that she saw a pair of eyes 
looking over the stall door at her, and she screams. That's when the lights go on, and Patrice rushes out, really anxious, understandably, and right when she gets back to her seat, she confronts the men and is like, what the hell were you just doing, or something to that effect. And they both look at her bewildered because they don't know what she's talking about. And the bartender came over to intervene, promising that no one had followed her, and people think it was Billy. Ew. The womanizer, yeah. And on that creepy note, for anybody who wants to visit the Lemp Mansion today, whether for dinner or an overnight stay, I would definitely recommend getting a lager because you're gonna need one for liquid courage, but also because that's what they recommend. Go to the bathroom before you get there. Yeah. I was gonna say that if I ever went, it would not be to sleep overnight, but you would definitely have to come to the bathroom with me because no way would I go alone. I'm not going to the bathroom, period. After that story, no thank Uh -uh. you. Yeah, pass me a cup. She had to leave without washing her hands. Terrifying. So scary. I didn't like that one. Scratching on the other side of the door? No. (laughs) The fuck out. That was scary. Yeah. Well, scratching on the bathroom walls aside, what do you think of the Lump Mansion? Was it what you were expecting? Loaded question. I guess I'm not surprised that it has the reputation it has today, given all of the Lemp family members who died there. And also the way that the Prohibition era affected the business. I'm sure the Lemps had to let a lot of employees go, which I imagine would also create an air of heaviness around what used to be a bustling factory environment. Are parts Mm -hmm. of the factory still standing today? Because I'm imagining it kind of like the beginning of Willy Wonka in the Chaka factory, you know, where the abandoned factory has this kind of ghost town feeling to it. So Mm -hmm. even before you consider paranormal activity, it's already a little eerie and sad. Totally. And also just the caves. I wonder if that has anything to do with the energy. I mean, just imagine the echoing sounds that would whistle through there. Yeah. And as we learned from Professor Thompson last year, there's a reason why we're all inherently afraid of the dark. Mm Mm-hmm. So being down there doesn't sound like a good time to me. I feel really weird about the whole thing and that the fact that the Lemp family used the caves as sort of this entertainment hub and then later the Hess guy turned it into a tourist attraction. It seems like the worst setting for either of those types of things. But, you know, I'm claustrophobic, so I don't know if I'm being biased. Totally. Brings back images of Barbarian, which we probably don't want those images back. But also it reminds me of another thing that Professor Thompson said about how One of the reasons that in the West we're afraid of basements could potentially be linked to the binary of good and evil and being lower into the ground 50 feet if you're in these caves is closer to hell or at least the symbolic version of that. Oh, geez. And then obviously the way that many of the members of the family died is very heavy and sad, but I feel particularly unsettled not knowing how Elsa died exactly, whether it was murder or if she did die by suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, I love to know. I, I like things to tie up nicely and to know all the answers. So that adds an extra layer for me of weirdness to the story. Yeah, just absolutely no resolution, especially because of the investigation. It's impossible for us to even use that to try to figure things out now in today's day and age. All right, that is all for today, everyone. I'm sure everyone listening probably needs a palate cleanser. But before we switch gears, the best way to keep these stories coming is to give us a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening and to share your favorite episodes with your friends. So with that, thank you all for listening and we will catch you next time. If you or someone you know is suffering from suicidal thoughts or self-harm, please call your country's crisis hotline, reach out to a trusted loved one, 
or a healthcare provider. You are not alone. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255 or simply dial 988. In addition, we have added links to a few warm lines in the episode notes. 